Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. You know, people always ask me, who are the shooters? Who are the shooters? How can we find the shooters? And FBI research gives us an average age of 35. And some people think that all the shooters are teenagers and 22-year-olds. But our listeners, of course, know better. They know that the average age of a shooter is older because most shootings, in fact, occur in places of business, not schools. But in these types of public shootings, we don't often see shooters who are really in the senior category. And that's what we have here. Now, I will say that many years ago when I was working with the FBI, we had a 87-year-old shooter at the Holocaust Museum. And we've done an episode on that. That was one of our Mm -hmm. first episodes, wasn't it? Back in, I think, even season one. Yes, I think season one. Mm -hmm. And he was a Nazi sympathizer and a horrible person in so many ways that we can't describe. But please go back and listen to the podcast if you'd like to know. And he was 87, and that was kind of an older marker for us. We just don't normally see shooters who are that old. Although, not to say that we don't have people in their 40s and 50s occasionally in their 60s, but the case that I want to talk about today is the Star Ballroom Dancing Studio case, where our shooter was 72 years old. Wow. Or I'm 72 so... years young. <laughs> well, I'll be saying 72 years young, I think, when I get to 72. It's just so unusual. I mean, I'm so intrigued by this case because... To me, it seems like you've got through life when you get to 72 and, you know, you haven't gone off the guardrails that Mm -hmm. you kind of managed to get through without doing anything too crazy. And then all of a sudden. So here's the thing about that. When you say, so all of a sudden, I really want to address that. Yeah, I'm sure you do. (laughs) (laughs) My bad. I know I'm going to get the old slot. Was there a slot one? Listeners are listeners are already like wagging their fingers going, Sarah, Sarah, Sarah. <laughs> when will she learn? When will she learn? Oh, it's no learn. You know, if you didn't have such a cute accent and you weren't so nice, I mean, oh, I'm just I saying. Know. I know. This actually is a horrible situation that occurred while I was right out in California in January. Uh, January 2023, I was out working in California on a a number of things with some clients and driving the coast. And I drove through this area, Monterey Park, where this shooting occurred. The really bad part, and the reason I mentioned that January is this occurred during the Lunar New Year Festival. Mm -hmm. It's a holiday period. And I say their holiday because this star ballroom dancing studio was in an Asian, completely Asian community 
It's very popular. People take dancing lessons and people dance there every night. And a lot of those people are the ages of grandparents and it's their social world. You're 22 and you go to the bar, they go to the dance hall. So during the Lunar New Year, the celebrations were going on all day. This is one of the first days. Then in the evening, people went to the dance studio as they often did. So this was late at night. It was actually after 10 o'clock at night, just after 10 o'clock. So wow, my bedtime were, and I'm not 72. Yeah. <laughs> well, you just need to up your game a little bit there, honey. Um, <laughs> that's what I think. Um, there were dozens of people in there, you know, doing the waltz and the foxtrot and the tango. And it was just a fun, crazy place that people frequented for years. So understanding that this was a 72-year-old, the patrons were often in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. These right. are people who had maybe danced at this dance studio for 20 years. Wow. For fun. This so was real, very. This is a real community hub. Exactly. Exactly. Very much so. Very much so. And the 72 year old comes into this studio just after 10 o'clock, 10 20 ish, and phew, begins to fire. Wow. Everywhere. 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 And in moments, 11 people are killed. Oh, wow. He fires 42 rounds, and there are 10 dead within moments at the scene. One dies later, 10 injured. It's the worst mm -hmm. shooting that's ever happened in Los Angeles County, understanding wow, that Los Angeles really? yeah, is a huge, right? That's a huge community, right? Yeah. Which, you know, you, you think, oh, this is a big city. They have lots of violence. This is the worst shooting in L.A. County ever. Wow. And, and it's also important to note, too, mm -hmm. does doesn't California have some of the strictest gun regulations? They do. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Right. They do. They have laws that do not allow you to conceal carry where other states, you not only can conceal carry, meaning that you can carry a pistol on your person that people can't see. The concept behind, and people sometimes say, what does that mean, conceal carry? The concept behind open carry and conceal carry is... That if you are openly carrying the weapon, meaning you have a gun on your waist in a holster yeah. or something, people can see it. At least people are aware of it. It's cold comfort and, to me. I'm not going to lie. But yeah, carry on. I know. <laughs> and you, you can see the, the back and forth with it, though, right? Some yeah. people might say, oh, well, at least I know if somebody has a gun. In a concealed carry, you don't know who's carrying a gun yeah. under any circumstance. You're getting into an argument with somebody who's pumping, uh, as you would say, petrol you know, uh, pumping gas at the station and you get into an argument and then they pull out a gun that's underneath their jacket and kill you. So to your question, California does have, and it has had since President Reagan was the governor of yeah. California. He signed the Munkert Act, which severely restricted the rights of gun owners in the state of California. And then uh, ironically went on to become a Republican president praising the National Rifle Association. But wow. um, yeah, I know. That's a big summary. I shouldn't I shouldn't make such a swathy statement about the president, but he did sign the Mumford Act when he was a governor. The state is very strict on gun regulations and carrying them around, buying them and things like that compared to many other states in the country. One question I've got for you before mm -hmm. you go on is what was the weapon? I mean, at 42 rounds, he's carrying a 
a semi-automatic rifle in this case. Yeah. Semi-automatic, you know, meaning that every time you pull a trigger, a round goes automatic, meaning that Mm -hmm. it loads a new round into the chamber and as soon as you fire one. So he fired this semi-automatic. It had a high-capacity magazine with it, meaning that he could have a whole bunch of rounds together, this high-capacity magazines. You know, I have a handgun that holds 10 rounds. Um, You know, others that hold 16, a high-capacity magazine might be 20 or 25 or 50 or even 100. There are 100 round capacity, high capacity magazines. It's very easy to do damage with all of that fire. Yeah. And both of those are are illegal. What he was carrying were both illegal in California because I'll tell you why dot, dot, dot down the road. Yeah, I do. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one, the one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it. Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look, but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything, from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements, or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. There are so many horrible facts about the victims. In fact, one of the victims was the original owner of the dance studio. I can tell you that this shooting was in January. And just recently, I read that the owner said she may not ever reopen. So, you know, this is in just over 15 minutes, this uh, family owned business, all of these people were mowed down. And it was just so so sad because the people who were inside were like husbands and wives. I was going to say that, you know, mm-hmm. people who met their spouses there, yeah. you know, it's just tragic. There were tragic. the ages of the people who were killed. I wrote these down because I want all of us to appreciate this loss. The ages of the people who were killed, 
there were six women, five men. 57 was the youngest person. 57, 62, 63, 64, 65, 67, 68. Two 72-year-olds and a 76-year-old. Wow. So I think that if I miss somebody, it's another 70-year-old. But that's who died. People who were in their 60s and 70s, who were grandmothers, right? Primarily uh, grandfathers. People who worked hard and retired immigrated to this country. Retired yet? That's the thing, you know. Like they're just they've worked all of their lives, Mm -hmm. and they're still working. And many of these, because of the Asian community, there were people Mm -hmm. who had emigrated. Their families, you know, they'd raised their families here. The American dream, all of that concept and mowed down, right? And just boom. Uh, so, so sad. Um, it really is. I mean, I know that we talk about these all the time and every single one is sad, but sometimes when you dishumanize those numbers into people in your own life and you think mm-hmm. about, you know, that's, that's, that's my parents' age, that's the grandparents of right. my children. It really speaks to what is gun violence and how does it impact a community? Yeah. I mean, this community has two dancing studios uh, at the time, and one of them is closed now. And it's a place that everybody went there every day. Yeah. So, so, so horrible. The shooter who did this, he was 72 years old, and he had emigrated to the United States in the 1990s. So he had been here for a while, Mm -hmm. and in fact, had danced at that studio and had taught some dance lessons at that studio through the years. But this shooter, he lived kind of nearby at one point, but then he moved away. When he did all this shooting, he left. So he gets in his car and he takes off and he leaves, but he doesn't just leave and uh, go home. He leaves and he drives to Alhambra, which is nearby, a few miles away, where there's another dance studio. What the heck? Yeah. All right. So how far does he get with that? Because obviously my burning question is going to be, what has he got against dance studios? Well, this is where good happens, right? This is where good happens. The other dance studio in El Hembro is owned by a family and their 26-year-old son is working in the front desk. Right. And in comes a 72-year-old man with a weapon and he intends to do a lot of damage Mm -hmm. and the surveillance camera gives us a video of what happens afterwards the kid sees him and reaches out and grabs the weapon run hide fight wow he grabs the weapon and he begins to struggle with this 72 year old now he is only 26 right so he is surely it is, but I will say that he put up a fight. The 72-year-old kind of put up a fight trying to hold on to the weapon. Mm. And the 26-year-old is pulling and struggling with the weapon and finally yanks it away from him and clearly is telling him to get out of there and go away and get out yeah. of there and go away. So he doesn't tackle him or anything like that. But you know what he knows is behind him are a whole bunch of patrons dancing <gasps> for the Lunar New Year. In yeah. the room right next to him. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know what the backstory is that this guy's already right. gone in and, you know. Right. He has no idea. Exactly. He has no idea that 
this guy has just come a few minutes earlier yeah. from attempting to kill 20 people and, in fact, was successful with 11 of them. So he struggles, he takes the gun, he sends this guy back out of the studio, and he calls police who say, oh, hey, maybe these are tied together. And the police put this together, and it takes a little bit of time to try to figure out what is going on. And they don't put out an alert to the public. So, I mean, and there's a reason. I mean, uh, it's kind of interesting. But then the subject they eventually track down They've got a description of the car, and as police eventually find the subject, as they approach the van that he's sitting in, he kills himself. So he's going to kill himself, but he takes 20 people with him and terrorizes two neighborhoods. Mate, unbelievable. Unbelievable. And also, when you're talking about how it took a while for the police to connect the two things, it must have been one of those nights on the 911 desk where you're just like, hold on, a dance studio and a dance studio. Right. I exactly. Mean, how, they must have just, you know. Yep. So they're busy too, responding but, right yeah. right over here in Monterey Park and then a few miles away in Alhambra. Yeah. They find another dance studio. And so when they respond to the second studio, they look at the surveillance camera. And they get some images of the guy mm. and they begin to see that they have a shooter who they think probably was the shooter at their first dance studio. I mean, it's not like there are dance studios in every corner, right? No, exactly. These aren't 7-Elevens and McDonald's, right? You know, they identify him and they are able to then kind of go back to where he lived and piece together some things. So I wanted to just mention a couple of things, though, about the subject and why This is relevant to everybody who's listening because this 72-year-old shooter had met his wife at this dance studio, right? And then they divorced. He knew and had danced at both studios. He knew a lot of people at them, although I didn't think he was targeting particular people at the studio. Um, But in an interview with his ex-wife later, she said he wasn't violent, but he was quick to anger. Right. Um, but here's probably the most interesting thing for me when I look at the subject and where I say, how can you find the next shooter? How can you find the next person who might do this? He had been to the police station a couple of times indicating that he believed that people around him and his family were trying to poison him and were stealing things from him. Wow. So... He thinks that people have been trying to poison him or stealing things. He's 72 years old. Mm. He probably should not have weapons. You know. Oh, these are not legally obtained weapons, are they? Actually, they're not legally obtained weapons. Right. You know, when they find legal process that allows them to look inside his house, they find out that he has been manufacturing gun suppressors in his house. Well, you're going to have to do gun suppressors for dummies here. What's a gun suppressor? It is a, a thing that muffles the noise. Oh, so like a silencer. And, mm-hmm. On TV, they, that's what they On TV, they call it, right. And um, <laughs> My own point been, of reference, Catherine. Exactly. That's true. <laughs> I mean, this is not like somebody who, who bought a gun and, you know, then went out and shot a bunch of people up. He's familiar with weapons from whatever his background was through the years. And so he's been, in fact, manufacturing suppressors. And if you're manufacturing them, you're probably selling them to people. 
So in fact, this guy has this other life that people maybe aren't familiar with. Right. So is suppressing manufacturing illegal? Yes. He doesn't have a license to do that. And the fact that he thought his family was poisoning him and stealing things. A lot of times, especially I hear this from a certain subset of people who I deal with a lot who say, well, did he have a big criminal background? He probably had a criminal background, which most of the time, none of them do. And uh, because, you know, when you have a criminal background that says you're a mass shooter or an active shooter, you probably aren't having access and ability to do that again because you're probably either dead or in jail. Yeah. But I don't know why people can't seem to connect on that. But he, in fact, was charged when he was in his 40s once with unlawful possession of firearms. So he was not unfamiliar with that, unfamiliar with firearms. And so people around him probably knew that he had firearms and probably not legal firearms. Yes. Uh, And the ammunition, and he was able to purchase it. And, you know, you can buy ammunition through the mail here and have it shipped to your house, thousands of rounds if you want. But I think the thing that was most telling for me, yeah, I know, was that he said his family was poisoning him and stealing things. Yeah. That can be a early sign of dementia. Mm-hmm. And he went to the police station a couple of times and mentioned that. And the police said to him, we'll come back, you know, with some evidence and, you know, we'll, we'll talk. And he never did. And so, in hindsight, would the police go back and actually look at that as it, you know, somebody who's investigating this case to try and work out actually what factors did put him on this pathway. Well, here's what happens when you have a shooter who kills themselves. A lot of times there's so limited police investigative, you know, time. They say, well, this isn't an open case. There isn't anything else to investigate. We know who did it and we might not know why, why he did it. That's not part of an investigation. Motivation. People always want motivation, but motivation is very rarely a a factor that's super relevant when it comes to prosecuting a case. Here you have a subject who's already committed suicide. I'm sure they spoke to different people. They pieced the case together and said, oh, yeah, yeah, this is the same guy who came to the station and said this and such and such, and that's why we have contact information on him. But pretty much that's it, right? It must be so unsatisfactory for the victim's families from that perspective. To not have an understanding of, okay, was this a person that was mentally unwell or I mean I don't know if that would give you any comfort actually as a victim's family but yeah and I think it's frustrating right people get frustrated because they don't know why did he do this and why did he do this because they feel like that might give them some satisfaction but a lot of people who I know who have been victims of these types of crimes say in the long run they just have to resolve uh, to deal with it and knowing more about the subject or knowing more about the why doesn't bring about a lot more healing so it's kind of you know hard for them I do look at all of these facts in this shooting, 20 people uh, shot, 11 of them dead, and say, you know, who saw him before he came back to the dance studio where he used to dance? Who knew that he was working on these suppressors? Who knew that he was potentially having some challenges over his mental health if he was by claiming that everybody was stealing this and maybe people were stealing things from him and trying to poison him he didn't bring any proof for that and that makes me wonder he obviously probably accused other people in his family of that and so they might have seen this too and yeah i know that it's great to buy a gun and have a gun but i worry about the millions and millions and millions of guns that have been purchased in the united states over the last four or five years 
And as people age, those guns will still be available in those homes. That is true, which might actually lead us on to next week's episode because we're going to be doing another case with an elderly shooter, aren't we? Oh, yes. Part two, elderly shooter next week. Yeah, stay tuned for that. Any parting words on this particular case? You know, because you can have a gun, legally or illegal, doesn't mean you should keep the gun. So pay attention to those around you. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to community podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, Please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it. Because it will happen. And it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts, or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule, 
history so interesting, it's criminal. <laughs>